to you now, and we just thank you for your blessings in our lives. And, and Father, we know that as we stand here this morning to sing your praises, Lord, we know that we are a blessed people. We live in a free country, and Father, we know that, uh, Lord, you, you've blessed this place. And Father, we just thank you for that. But Father, I know there could be some here this morning that are looking for some type of healing to take place in their life. Maybe it's physical healing. Maybe it's a, a relational healing with someone that they dearly love. But Father, we know that the greatest need any one of us have this morning is a spiritual need, a spiritual healing that needs to take place in our lives. And Father, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they'll be touched by your word this morning. Father, I thank you for a church that is serious about making you known throughout the world. And Father, I just thank you for our attempts, Lord, as we, we do do that, to, to attempt to make you known. And Father, thank you for bringing us here this day, Father. And just uh, we just want to bring you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You can be seated if you will. I just want to... Thank you for being here this morning. We are kind of on a different schedule this morning as uh, we did have a family camp last night. We had a wonderful time. As Jonathan said, we had about 200 people here and uh, we had a trailer set up out there in the parking lot. We had a service. Uh, a little chilly last night, but uh, had a good time. Uh, I did not camp out. My, my idea of camping, I think I've told you, is Hampton Inn. And um, so anyway, you're looking at me like you're a sissy boy, aren't you? Yeah, probably so. But anyway... Um, I, I went home and, and got my own bed. So uh, anyway, all right. Well, I do want to thank you for being here this morning. I, I, I want to basically look at uh, what we're doing at the, this morning. Last week, I asked the question, what if? And basically, I was looking at uh, or, or trying to attempt to show you where I believe God is leading us over the next decade as it, re as it relates to facilities and what our campus pop, uh, possibly could look like as we go forward. But not only that, what will be our attempts in community outreach? Again, I feel like we're a church that's doing a great job. We could always improve on things with, with foreign missions as we do support the Southern Baptist Convention and their attempts. But not only that, we have our own attempts at world missions when it comes to those that we fully get behind. But here in our community, I feel like there's something that is amiss with our church as it relates to us getting into the community. And uh, you're going to hear more and more about what's going to happen this coming year as it relates to our attempts in going in that direction. So I hope you will bear with us. But this morning, what I want to do is I want us to talk about the church that does impact this community. Last week, we looked at what if, and we basically asked the question, what if, or we basically say, if you look at the outline there on your, uh, the outline there in your pass, or <laughs> in your handout, what if is one of the most powerful phrases in the English language. One can look back uh, and say, what if, and be filled with regret and discouragement. I think every one of us in this room could identify with some of that. But what about the what if that looks to the future? And the whole idea there is seeing endless possibilities and opportunities. And, and so what I want us to do as Christians, as people of God, is I want us to look into our own lives and wonder and think, what if I get serious about what God's called me to do with the rest of my life? What if this church got on fire for the Lord and, and basically said, you know something, I want us to, to impact the world in a way that it can be impacted. 
So today what we're looking at is what if in the context of the church, we see endless possibilities and opportunities that are presented to the church by the Holy Spirit and carried out by a truth-living, unified church. If you'll turn to Philippians chapter 2, you'll see what I'm talking about. In Philippians chapter 2, we're reading about a church that is growing. We're reading about a church that is impacting its community. And Paul is basically challenging them by saying, hey, look, there's some things that you need to understand going forward as a growing church, as a church that's bringing people together, as a church that's going out. He's saying you've got to make unity a priority. Unity must be a priority when it comes to the local church. You see, when a church is strong and growing, it is always full of vision and planning. It is always working out a strategy to carry forth the gospel. Many would say a strong and growing church is never still nor complacent. And neither are the minds and hands of the people that make up that church. And then here's what we need to understand. While we're attempting to do something that God's called us to do, we need to also understand that he's bringing together people with different opinions, different desires, different interests, different preferences, and even opposing views when it comes to possibly what God may have us do. And so when, when we look at the body of Christ, I want you to think about all the people that are attempting to be unified and where their backgrounds from which they come. So the point is, listen, the more vision and activity a church has, the more attention it must give to unity, to unity. And Paul's given the same challenge to the church at Philippi. So this morning, what I want us to do is look at what Paul is telling that thriving church, just as what I think God could be telling us here this morning. First of all, we see the expectancy from unity. So what is expected? First of all, we need to understand that strife, jealousy, pride, selfishness, personal agendas, and ambitions all lead to disunity within the body of Christ. We see churches across the landscape of America, even here in our own community, that are struggling with things. Or their, their differences are made bigger than what they do agree upon. And many times, if we're not careful as Christians, we'll begin to disagree like what we're watching in the news by vilifying those who are not necessarily evil as much as the fact that we're just disagreeing. And there's some things that we must agree on, but there are also things that we can agree to disagree on. In Philippians chapter 2, I want to read this from, from the message. Many of you know that the message is a paraphrase of God's word. Uh, I think it's a, a neat paraphrase of God's word, but I like what he says here. Okay, So look here on the screen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what, here's what it says. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Live in agreement with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage and forget yourself long enough to help others. 
You see, to me, Paul is saying, hey, if you're going to be a church that continues to have an impact, if you're a church that's going to continue to grow with people from differing views, there's one thing that must happen. We must get our personal agendas, set those aside, and see what God desires to do in and through us. Now, many times I think people look at what a preacher is preaching on Sunday morning and say, Boy, this church must be really dealing with disunity the way he's going about it this morning. Let me just say this. That, that is contrary to anything that I'm feeling about our church right now. I feel like we are probably more unified than we've been in many, many years. And we have tackled some big things over the years. And, and as I said last night to the congregation that was here last night, I am so proud of where our church is and what it's attempting to do and how we all have had to lay aside things that we would probably deem as important for the betterment of this church and its opportunity to reach its community. And not only the community of today, but the community of tomorrow. And so I'm here to say that I'm not addressing an issue that I think is, is, is vital to our church here this morning. But it is one of those things where we must be careful because the enemy will look for anything he can use to come in and bring disunity in the body. He can even take some of the good things that are happening through our church and create chaos. I've seen him do it in churches. And so what we need to be mindful of is we don't think we're beyond this. We could easily be right in the middle of this unity if we don't protect ourselves. And so this morning what I'm doing is using what Paul tells this church. Basically, I'm telling you that there's certain things, if we're going to keep unity in this church, there's several things that must be out in front of us. And so here it is, the expectancy of unity. There's four attitudes that we need to keep the unity. First of all, we need encouragement. Encouragement. In Philippians chapter 2, if you look at God's word there in front of you, in verse 1 it says, therefore, therefore, if we're going to keep what God is doing important here. If, and what you'll find just before this therefore is there in chapter one, Paul is praying for that church. He's saying, boy, when I think of you, I think good things of you. Boy, you're impacting, you're shaking your world. And then he says, therefore, if there's any consolation, that word of consolation can be encouragement. If there's any encouragement in Christ, the first thing we see there, Paul says, encouragement is a big deal. Now think about what encouragement does. When you're encouraged, I don't know about you, it lights a fire in me. When people encourage me and tell me how much they like my shirt. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I had one person that's sitting in the room right now ask me where the picnic was when the last time I wore this shirt. He knows who he is. He's laughing the hardest right now. But, but, but I just want you to understand, when it comes to encouragement, I want you to think about what it does. It lights a fire in a person. It, it builds passion. And, and, and y'all, we need to be people who are not only encouraged by what Christ has done for us and in us. We need to allow that encouragement to go through us into the lives of other people. And so I want to ask you a question this morning. Who was the last person you encouraged? Who's the last person you said, you know something? You did a good job. I love the fact that we honored those here on the stage this morning. Yeah, they had a tough night last night. Matter of fact, I'm surprised they're up here. They didn't send a different team this morning. But, but it is. It's all about encouraging one another. And the Bible even talks about encouraging one another to good works. 
It's that idea of building passion in people for the, for the love of Christ and for the work of Christ. A second attitude that leads to unity is love. We've got to have a love for one another. And, and the love, look at what he says. If you have, if any comfort of love, the word love here is agape love. We know what agape love is. It's a selfless, sacrificial love. It's an unconditional love. A love that sees past our differences. It's a love that says, even though sometimes I don't understand you, even though sometimes I don't quite get where you're coming from, even though there's those things that are out there, I still make a choice to love you. Y'all, that's needed not only in our homes, but right here in our church. We got to have a love a love for one another. It's a love that's not deserved. Imagine the spirit of unity that would exist in a church if every member would let the love of Christ work and care through them. Imagine what that would look like. In John chapter 15, Jesus said this. He said, this is my commandment. This is something that I desire of you. This is what I command of you, that you love one another. And then, there in, then many could have said, well, how are we to do that? Well, look at what he says. As I have loved you, the same love you've received from me, allow that love to extend to others, especially those of the household of faith, especially those within the church. Four attitudes that are needed to bring unity to a church. You gotta have encouragement. You gotta have love. But thirdly, you gotta have fellowship. Fellowship. Now, in the Baptist church or in the church I've been used to all my life, what's fellowship? It's normally in the form of fried chicken. You remember the good old days when churches had the big spreads on some Sunday afternoons and you had all the food out there? Fellowship could be all kinds of things. Last night, fellowship was camping out. Still don't get how that, no, I'm just kidding. But anyway... (laughs) But it is, it's that idea that we come together and we do bring our differences. We do bring all these things that sometimes don't quite make sense, but we come together and do and and love one another. You see, once a person has trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit does two things of significance for them and to them. First of all, the, the, the Holy Spirit enters the believer to comfort them, to guide them, and to teach them. And y'all, that is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's him coming in and and doing those things. And that's really what fellowship looks like. Look what it says in verse 2. Excuse me, verse 1. If any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's the fellowship of the Spirit going on within you, it's something that should continue outside of you. And so there are times that not only do we receive that from the Holy Spirit, exactly what he does, what does he do? He, he guides us, he comforts us, and he teaches us. We're to do that for one another. It's something that must continue in and through us. And through this, there will be a spiritual union between the believer and other believers and also with the Holy Spirit. There's a bond that is formed. You see, we need to be aware that, that the church is not only the body of Christ, it's not only, not only a church family, there need to be strong bonds within the body. And, and we need to understand that is vital, and that's what Paul's encouraging them with. We need to be devoted partners in what God has called us to as a church, and that is promoted through fellowship. Next, four attitudes that are needed to bring unity to a church family. We've got encouragement, love, fellowship, and we better have compassion. 
compassion. I asked the crowd last night, I said, how many of you have ever said something like this? I feel so sorry for you. Does that sound like compassion? No, it sounds like you're nailing someone to the wall, doesn't it? I feel so sorry for you. you But we are, I mean, there's times where we got to have compassion for one another. There's times we got, there may be times we don't understand one another. But when we don't understand, we need to allow compassion to enter into those situations. And here's what I mean. Look at what he says in verse 1, the last part. He says, if there's any affection and mercy, that's what we need for one another. You put those two words together and you have the idea of compassion. A lot of times we look into the world, the very world we're called to reach. And we see those people out there, and it's so obvious sometimes. And I'm not saying this from someone looking down. I'm saying this as, a, as what the Bible says. We see the lostness that's out there. How many of you know what I'm talking about? There is a lostness in our world, in our society right now. And, and, and you know something? There's a lot of times that sometimes that lostness angers me to see what the outcomes are. But you know something? We, as those who have compassion those who are called to reach those with the greatest message that's ever been, we don't have the luxury of having anger towards those things. We, We are called to have compassion towards those that are outside the faith. And if we don't, then something's wrong. We're not only to have compassion for one another, we need compassion for those outside the faith. And if we don't, we'll never be effective in reaching those for Christ. You see, I want you to think about it. If we allow compassion to flow through us, we can go after those who have been hurt. We can go after those who are indifferent. We can even go after those who are critical. We can even go after those who are enemies of what we're called to do if we have compassion, if we continue to reach with the love of Christ. In 1 Peter 3, 8, it says this, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Now, what Paul, Peter is talking about here, he's talking about those inside the those of the faith to have that compassion of one another. But we not only need compassion with one another, we need to have compassion for those outside the faith. So encouragement, love, fellowship, and compassion are necessary to bring unity to a church family. But second of all, I want you to see the essence of of unity. In Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 2, the first part. Paul says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love. Now, when he says having the same love, he's talking about the motivation of love. He's talking about the same love we received. We need to be one in that love and a love that reaches out beyond ourselves. And then he has the idea of being like-minded. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look here on the screen. It says, Paul says to another church, now I plead with you. It's the idea, I beg you. And by the way, the Corinthian church was not a unified church. He says, I beg you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing, that you speak the same message, that you understand the idea of compassion and love and fellowship and encouragement, and that there be no divisions among you, but you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. When he says in the same judgment, he's basically saying that you reach the same conclusions about decisions. And he's basically saying, I beg you to do this. And this is the whole idea of of the essence of, uh, of unity. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, you're very familiar with these verses, but look what it says. Therefore, he's referring back to chapter 11, and he's basically saying, in light of all these people's faith of the Old Testament, in light of the fact that only faith will please the heart of God, he says this. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those mentioned in chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight. Let us uh, lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. How many of you are aware that sin can easily mess us up, tie us up, our reactions, our attitudes? I mean, sometimes it's almost, don't raise your hand, but sometimes are you shocked sometimes by your reaction to things? Have you ever done something and thought, where did that come from? Most of the time we look at the other person and say to them, where did that come from? But sometimes I'm shocked with what's right here in my own self. And I wonder, where's that coming from? And of course, we would say it's the flesh. And it so easily can just come up. And, and Paul is basically, or the writer of Hebrews basically saying, okay, there's all these examples of faith back here. There's weights that we're carrying. Some of you are carrying unforgiveness. Some of you are carrying the lack of compassion for certain people. Some of you are just, your flesh gets the best of you every time you turn around. Sin is always before you. And he says, let's put those things aside. He could be saying there's too much at stake to get tied up in those things. And he says, let us run. Let us continue the path. When you run, the context he's talking about is the path that's determined for us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Looking to whom? To Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy, this is the key, for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Some of you say, what does this verse have to do with unity? It has everything to do with unity. You see, the unity that was formed between Christ and his father was the fact that he was sent to do something. And his only ambition, his only joy was to fulfill what the father called him to fulfill. The same passion that Jesus had that we read here should be our passion. We should realize there's too much at stake. For Jesus, humanity was at stake. Salvation was at stake for humanity. And for us, we're called to get that same message that he died for to get it out there. It's basically, if you put it in the context of what Paul's telling the church at Philippi, there's too much at stake not to be unified as the body. We're called to be unified. And how Jesus was never more satisfied, ne never had any more joy than when he was fulfilling what God called him to do, what his father called him to do. And so we must understand that's at the forefront. Next, the expression of unity. There's a corresponding outlook. Once there's unity, what is the evidence that there is unity? That's what we're asking here. Corresponding unity. Look at what he says in the last part of verse 2. Being of one accord, of one mind. Again, it's the idea of being like-minded. Now, how are we unified with one mind coming from many different backgrounds? I want you to think about it. In this room, we have people from all different backgrounds. No two of us were raised exactly the same unless your brother and sister happen to, I guess that could happen here. 
But, but none of us had that. None, none of us had the same gifts. We all have different gifts. I mean, we have different preferences. There's so many things. There's more things that are different about us than are common about us other than the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. And yet we're bringing all these differences together. The reason I use the word corresponding outlook, the reason I use the word corresponding is because of its definition. It is a perfect definition when it comes to the church. Listen to what the definition is. Three parts. First of all, corresponding is identical in all essentials. Now, how many of you understand that when it comes to the church, there are some essentials about the church? Yes, Jesus is the lead story. We are unified to carry the message forward. We are unified to make him known to the world. We are unified to bring him glory. And so there are some essentials when it comes to how we see things. Secondly, here's the second part of the definition, similar in position. Similar in position. So first of all, we're identical in the essentials. There are some things that are essential that's got to be out there. There's no debate over those things. But then there comes the idea, there's a similarity in the position. We could use that as a spiritual gifts. We're going to have different outlooks determining determined by our spiritual gifts. When you start looking at spiritual gifts, especially those mentioned in Romans chapter 12, and you start looking at those seven gifts, every one of those gifts are probably going to give you a little different outlook. They'll be similar, but it's going to be a little different way of accomplishing what God's called us to accomplish. That is that corresponding outlook. We're going to have different. But yet, when we tie it all together, what do we do? We have the perfect outlook when we start bringing all that together. Okay, then a third part of the definition, associated in a working relationship. Somehow we got to take the essentials. Somehow we got to bring people from all different backgrounds with different positions into a working relationship. That's what the church is attempting to do. That's what we're called to do. And that's what unity looks like. We'll never see things exactly the same. You take the person with the gift of prophecy or the prophet and you put them beside the person of mercy. They're going to look at things completely different. But yet there's a sameness about it too. There's a unity that can come around that. But what does that look like? It's really this. Bind into the same vision by keeping the main thing, the main thing as it relates to Christ and his purpose for the church, yet realizing there's all these vast differences between us that we bring together for the working of the gospel. That's what we're called to do. And look on your outline. Being one in spirit, that means we have a kindred spirit. There's a bond between us. But we are being one in purpose. That means our lives center around the wishes of God. So there's that one in spirit, a kindred spirit, being one in purpose. It's a, our lives center around the wishes of God. And by the way, if we all had that attitude of, of, of allowing our, our, the core of who we are to be surrounded by the wishes of God, guess what? We'll naturally come together. It'll just be a natural outflow of unity. So think about what we're attempting to do here. It's really fascinating that it works. Wouldn't you agree? Think about it. We are to operate as one, even though we come from different backgrounds, different experiences, different personalities, and different giftings. And he says, 
Make it one. Matter of fact, make it one in such a way that you look like a body, a working, functioning body. And then he says, over in Corinthians, some of your ears, some of your mouths, some of your hands, some of your feet, some of your big toes. I'm making this, this part up. <laughs> I mean, you got all these different things. And he says, now go, bring me glory, make me known, fulfill what I've called you to fulfill. How many of you are, are amazed when that even works? I am. It's a miracle. It's what God's called us to do. Let me ask you a question. Do political parties pull it off? <laughs> you look outside any other organization, any other thing, you don't see the effectiveness that you find in the church when it operates properly and we get ourselves out of the way. Only the church can truly bring that about. Next, the expression of unity. What does it look like when everybody's unified? There's a corresponding outlook. But secondly, there's humility. It only works when there's humility. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Does that sound like anything else that the world's talking about right now? Nothing. Everyone in the world, if left to our flesh, are jockeying for position. How many of you know that in your own flesh, that's normally what you're doing when you're living in the flesh, you're jockeying for position? Think about your arguments with your spouse. What are you doing? You're jockeying for a position. What about children who come in opposition to their parents? They're trying to impose their op. I mean, there's all this. It's everywhere. But in the church, he's saying there's no place for it. Paul is saying, don't let pride enter the attitude of the body. Now, I want you to look at this. He points two things out. There are two ways pride hurts the body. Look at this, look at this verse, verse three. Selfish ambition. It's when a person puts their own agenda ahead of what's best for the church. When someone says, no, absolutely not. I've heard of churches. I have some pastor friends who basically say, you know, I think we could get on with the business of spreading the gospel if we could just get past determining what color the carpet's going to be in the sanctuary. You may laugh at that, but that is true. It's happening. And the thing we need to understand is there's no place. There's too much at stake. He's saying, come on, let's get this together. How about conceit? That's another word he pulls from this. When a person seeks glory for themselves, when they desire recognition and attention. You know where, how many of you have ever heard the idea that, um, uh, the devil fell and fell into the, to the worship team or something like that in our language. How many of you ever heard that before? You know, he led the worship and that kind of was seeking his own glory. You know why I love these people up here that lead us in worship? You can say what you want to. I know the hearts of these people. There's no egos up here. These people want to honor the Lord. And, and I'm just going to tell you, I, 
I've been around the egos that lead worship, and I've been around the ones that don't. This is a group that they do not. I wish you could hear their hearts when we're planning things and when we're attempting to do things. That, that's, to me, that, that, that matters more than anything, that we're not trying to cater to egos, that we are honestly attempting to make him known that he is the most important thing going on on Sunday mornings around here. And the rest of the week as we attempt to operate as a church, we, we can't afford to have that. What should be our attitude concerning others? Listen to this. We are to have the mind of Christ, which is one of humility. Skip down to verse 8. Look at our example. And being found, this is speaking of Jesus, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself. He lowered himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now think about what Jesus did. He's the example. He was deity who came as a man. That should blow your mind. When we read about other deities and other religions, do we see de deity displayed like this? <laughs> you don't. Humility, look on your outline. Humility, number one, requires an honest evaluation. Humility comes from seeing ourselves as we truly are. And basically he's saying the way we look, should look at ourselves is, look at what he says in verse 3. He says, lowliness of mind. That means we do not try to make ourselves rise above the other. That means that our opinion is not something that must be screamed out there. Our agendas. No, he's basically, we come into our own mind and we realize there's a greater purpose. There's a greater cause. Uni unity is needed. And it requires lowliness of mind. Number two, humility requires courage. It takes courage to do what Jesus did. It takes courage for us to operate in humility. You say, what do you mean? Because people love to take charge over people who are, who are exemplifying humility. Have you ever noticed that? They love to try to take advantage of it. And it requires great courage. Look at what he says in verse 3. Let each esteem others, how? Better than himself. We're not seeing that in anything in our world right now. The message is totally different. Next, the expression of unity, there's a corresponding outlook. There's humility, but number three, there's consideration. In verse 4 of chapter 2, let each of you look out not only for his own interest. It's interesting that Paul says, you know, we do all have needs. We do have some interests. There are some things that we do need to pay attention to when it comes to ourselves. But then he says, but also for the interest of others. And then in several places in Scripture, we're told to put the interest of others ahead of our own you don't see that anywhere out there today, do you? It's not even a message that's even close. This verse is actually the expression of humility. Lowering yourself, your desires, your preferences, your needs. Raising up others' desires, maybe even their preferences, maybe even their needs. All from consideration, paying close attention to the lives of others and supplying what is needed. That is what we're called to do, to have that consideration. 
It requires a change of attitude, a change of mindset. It requires literally the idea of crucifying the flesh. Not, rational, not trying to rationalize the flesh. Not trying to make deals with the flesh. What does it say? Crucify. You know what crucify means? Literally. To put to death violently. Violently. How did Christ put the interest of others ahead of his own? Aren't you glad that we serve a God through Jesus Christ that gave us the perfect example of how we should live our own lives? It shows us right here. Look at verse, verse 5, same chapter. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, who was equal with God, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. Hey, I mean, it was one of those things where God was saying the same thing Jesus could say about himself, that they were equal. They were both deity. They weren't created beings. They were deity. But look at what he did. But he made himself of no reputation. The word literally means he emptied himself. He stripped himself of all that deity could do. And then it says, taking the form of a bondservant, not just a man, but a slave, and coming in the likeness of men, all leading him to the cross. I want to ask Wesley if he would come and play for us. I want us to really take seriously what God's word says this morning. And so what I want you to do is I just want you to bow your heads right there where you are. And I want us to closely think about what God's word is saying right now. There are two things that can destroy unity. A person under the influence of the enemy. Let me just tell you this. The enemy is not only looking to destroy you personally, his greatest achievement would be to use you, a believer in Christ, someone who professes Christ, it would be for him to use you in such a way that you create distractions in the body, that you would bring about disunity. And what we're finding here is, is this whole idea that we are not to surrender to the enemy's causes. The second thing that can destroy unity is a person who does not crucify his or her flesh. Who's constantly pushing their own agendas. Constantly pushing forth their own egos. So how do we keep this from happening? Romans chapter 12. I want you to, there in the quietness of your heart, I want you to listen to these verses. Paul says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. He goes on to say, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on things, high things, but associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own opinion. He goes on to say, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all. As much as it depends upon you. And so here's the application this morning for us all. To accomplish the what if before us as a church, we must be a Holy Spirit-led, truth-living, unified church. And that just doesn't happen. 
It happens when the people that make up that church decide they want to be truth living, who decide they want to be led of the Spirit, who decide they want to be a unified church that goes out and does exactly what their Savior asked them to do, to bring Him glory, to make Him known. That is what He's asking of each of us. And as a result of asking each of us, it is only then that we become the body He's called us to be. So the question this morning is this, what if, what if we as a church got serious about making him known? What if we as a church said, no matter what it took, we're going to go out there into this community, we're going to go out into this world, and we're going to get into the path of people to compel them to come to Christ, to compel them to look for the right place for the true answers of life. To compel them to, to look to the example of Christ. Not the example of politicians. Not the example that the world's putting forth. But that they become an example of Christ. But it can only be demonstrated first by those who profess him. That being us. I want to ask the ushers if they'd come forward. I want us to pray right there where you are. Father, I thank you as I look around this room. I see so many people in this room that, that do put others first. I see people around this room that have recently in this church put other generations first. That we can be a church that's vibrant, that's in its attempt to, to touch, to reach families to reach people who don't know you, to say there are better answers out there than what this world is offering, to lead people to truth. And in the face of all the lies that we're hearing around us, Father, I thank you that we are a church that is relevant, that is attempting to reach into its community and its world and make you known, Father. Father, we have such a long ways to go. But Father, I thank you that we're springboarding off a church that is unified in purpose, that is unified realizing there's too much at stake to, to be caught up in petty things that really don't matter. Father, I thank you that I have the privilege to help lead a church like that. And over this next decade, we have so much to look forward to. We have such endless possibilities. There's opportunities in front of us, Father. Help us to step through the doors that you present to us. Step through the doors of opportunity and become all that you've called us to be. Father, I thank you that that's the heart is, that is in the leadership here. And Father, we pray it will be in the heart of those that come to worship here. Father, thank you for this offering and use it as only you can to, 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 in our attempts to touch the world with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Jonathan?